This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 17th, 2022. I'm Scott Lundbom. And I'm Ian Bushfield, still suffering from some kind of chest cold and post-cold infection. So, Isn't that just like what every parent is dealing with right now? Like, I can usually get over a cold, right? And everyone else in my house did, but I just have like the persistent cough now. It's my turn to deal yeah. with that. And so I'll be muting myself randomly, and I am apologizing in advance to our editor. <gasps> But on today's show, we're going to be talking about how the BC Liberals are now united, finally, and, well, almost, and Horgan's last goodbye, as well as some quick takes. Before we get into it, though, support the show, join us at patreon.com slash politicoast. It's possible by the time you're listening to this, twitter.com is no longer on the internet. Things seem to be taking an increasingly bad trajectory there. But our little corner on Slack is going to be continuing to chug along. We see no reason to expect Slack to go down like Twitter is because Musk hasn't bought it out. So join us and get in on that action. Let's start here in British Columbia. The big news this week, the votes that we teased uh, in the BC Liberal Party to change their party name has happened. 8,000 members voted, and they voted 80% in favor of Kevin Falcon's preferred name change, the BC United. Why, though? I mean, that was the the question they asked. It is just such a terrible name for this Uh, on there. The the BC Liberals have needed to do some serious rebuilding since 2017, and I guess this is part of it, but also, like, Nothing about the name was so terrible, or their existing brand was so terrible that just like the work of doing rebuilding wouldn't have gotten you most of the way there. And now you have to like introduce a new name, spend a whole bunch to like do all your rebranding costs and like run a bunch of ads and stuff so people actually know who you are for the next selection. Just, you know. The VC Liberals around the province for 16 years. Like, people at least know who they are, unlike VC United. And also, the other big problem here is this is a name that is just so clearly chosen to try and assuage the coalitional problems within the party and try and hold it together. Like, it's not an outwardly focused name on trying to hey, this is what we want to do for BC, or this is kind of what our overarching worldview is, or anything like that. It is very much a, hey, trust us, we can actually stick together, it says so in our name, and, you know, kind of like being a gentleman. If you have to tell people you are united, you're probably not. I, like, I don't hate the name. Um, Like, I get all the soccer team jokes, I get that it's not really that cat. It doesn't even have the word party in it. Like if they went for BC United Party, they could shorten it to BC Up. And people would make fun of that. But they're like, but Up is a positive thing. And you're the party yeah, that wants like to take better. you up. 
they didn't go for that. I don't know why. I don't know how they got to BC United. But at the same time, people made fun of the United Conservative Party when they pitched that name because, you know, the initials, the acronym is UCP. And that's kind of funny in a middle school way. And this is kind of funny in a, it's a soccer team way, which, you know, we laugh, but, and it's not that inspiring, but like, they're going to be doing a brand change regardless with the refurbishment and the, you know, refresh that needed to be done for the party. So now instead of just finding a different way to make BC Liberal logo look modern, you just start from scratch. So it opens up your branding a lot more, I guess. So I'm not as choked on that. I don't know if I would have voted for it if I were a member of the party. So I'm like, that's where I'm coming down on this is just the raw vote is like 80% in favor of this. It doesn't feel that exciting to get that strong of a mandate. Well, that's just the other thing worth noting is like 8,000 votes cast is out of a membership of around 40, 45,000 coming off of their last leadership race. So Either a lot of people had no strong feelings about this, maybe a lot of their members just dropped off after the leadership race. I'm not clear, but yeah, an 18% turnout is pitiful. Yeah, so like the the, the uh, shortest duration membership you can get is a one-year membership. Uh, and like this time last year, I th- think they were still in the pro... I think that... Yeah, it was the... I think like end of December was kind of when the membership cutoff was for the... The vote, so, like, with the exception of the people that, like, got in early and bought their stuff, like, decent chunk of the people who joined for the party membership or party leadership race probably were still eligible to vote. That said, like, it's, um, a lot of memberships that get sold during uh, leadership races just don't have strong connections to the party. They're brought in to back a specific candidate. Um, so it's not a huge surprise that there wasn't a a giant turnout on this. That 18% probably actually realistically reflects the, like, actually tuned in members on a lot of this stuff. That said, it also means that there was no real effort to mess with Kevin Falcon here. Because, like, yeah, he gets a win and pushes through what he wanted. But, you know, with 18% voting, there was, if someone had wanted to, they could have embarrassed Kevin Falcon by getting uh, some opposition organized for it. And there was just zero of that. Like, So that's, if anything, the more interesting aspect. What it tells you about kind of where things are internally is that Kevin Falcon doesn't really have like a strong opposition within the caucus. Or if there is... They're not the kind that want to latch themselves to the label BC Liberal. That too. Like maybe there's the like right wing populist types in there who are maybe on edge or unsure about Kevin Falcon, but they weren't going to come around to be like, no, we need to keep liberal in our name, which, you know, that's the big win in many ways here is they don't have to have that brand confusion with the federal liberals. And I have heard people talk about, you know, now they need to sell a new brand to voters. And it's like, well, ABC did that in Vancouver in a couple weeks, a couple months. Well, I mean, they, were, um, they announced that like a year and a half out, which, yeah, yeah it's and actually they have two years here for and, BC Liberals. So. Um, so it's doable. It's just a cost and you have to spend time dealing with that that you aren't spending on other stuff. Uh, 
the resource allocation question and their fundraising hasn't been super strong. So there's reasonable questions about if this is the best use of resources for that. As for the actual ties or the perceived ties to the federal liberal party, if you look at like how Metro Vancouver votes federally, it, it, it's pretty liberal. Like they, they would actually probably be better off in terms of the areas they actually need to win back for people to mistake them for the liberals that they would be t- to mistake them for the conservatives. Like a lot, a lot of this was spurred by the fact that uh, people door knocking in the interior were hearing about people who didn't like the federal liberals and whatnot. And yeah, they're they're not super popular there. But those are also the parts of the province the BC Liberals easily win. It's not the part of the province where they need to retake lost ground, and that's Metro Vancouver and. That's just not as big a downside in Metro Vancouver as it is in the parts of the province the party actually has a lock on already. So this is this seems to be chasing the existing voters more than it is chasing the voters they need. I think that's a really good point and an important one that gets missed here. In a few years, it's hard to say if Trudeau will still be as popular in Vancouver as he is or was in 2015. Uh, but the Liberals are still more popular in Metro Van than Conservatives are in many ways. So maybe the voters are going to the NDP. And so finding some way to just dissociate a little could still be beneficial while still trying to p- pitch yourself as something that can appeal to people who voted for Ken Sim in Vancouver, and who would vote for, you know, federal Conservative MPs in Kelowna and Prince George and, you know, the rural parts of the province. Maybe this is all they need, plus some some clear policies would be the next thing I'm looking for from the Liberals. You know, policies that aren't just, we're not the NDP, but it's enough out from an election, all they need to be is a opposition for a while, and they can start to build what their opposition is about uh, going from here. But yeah, BC United. The other big story this week is that it's the handover week tomorrow. Uh, for the premiership. But before John Horgan leaves his job, uh, he has announced that he is willing to be the broker who solves the healthcare crisis. He hasn't done it yet. uh, But, you know, he'll stick around if the provinces and the federal government want him to act as the in-between who manages to buddy his way around into finding a deal that the provinces and the federal government are all happy with. Well, everyone needs so, a uh, hobby in retirement, so <laughs> I guess this is well, sort of- And he's not even quitting as an MLA as far as I know, so he'll still be around, but... The uh, the story of the Vancouver Sun did say he's not expected to finish out the rest of the term, but uh, yeah, nothing seems solid one way or the other on that. Um... As for the actual uh, question of whether he would be going to broker a deal on healthcare funding, like, I don't know. I we'll see it. Like th- there's you know fundamental disagreements between how the provinces and how the federal government want to approach this, and the provinces don't have a huge amount of leverage on the federal government beyond trying to make the bad state of the healthcare system the federal government's fault in the court of public opinion. But in terms of like when you're in a room negotiating, the feds hold most of the cards on this. They can spend the money or not spend the money, but 
ultimately helped here is the province's responsibility and they can ask and try and use their political capital to try and get money out of the feds that isn't tied to specific federal funding priorities but the feds don't have to go along with it unless they start to feel that they are going to be in a bad spot politically if they don't and i am not sure john horton is necessarily the person who is going to be able to do that and like this what it was pitched as in the uh the sun story it sounded more like oh i'm going to be the guy that's going to be yeah going back and forth chan between them all and like ultimately that's probably not going to be how this is resolved they need someone who's willing to uh throw bombs uh in public on this to to stir stuff up and that that doesn't seem to be john horgan or at least the the john horgan of 2022 so to give a bit of the background because this has been a story that's been simmering for a few months now and like weirdly the provinces have taken out ads on this i've heard it on the radio a few times and a few other and like on youtube you'll get ads from the provincial government saying it's all the fed's fault basically the provinces all came together in the summer and agreed that it is the federal government's fault that we don't have enough money for health care. Uh, they say that at this point, the federal government's share of funding of health care, which was supposed to be 50-50, is now down to about 22%. They want to get it up to 35%, which would be an extra $4 billion of annual funding from the feds to the provinces in transfers. The federal government says, ha, no, no way. Uh, also, there's a bunch of tax transfers and complicated reasons. You're actually getting a ton of money. And this gives tons of fuel for economists, liberal partisans, provincial partisans, and everyone on Twitter to just, well, it's still there, to squabble and say, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. And meanwhile, uh, children's hospitals, you can't go to the emergency room and everywhere is kind of in collapse for a multitude of reasons. On the federal government side, it's mostly been the ministers, notably Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, Duclos? Uh, and others on the front lines saying, you know, we're not going to cut blank checks. We want to have funding tied to outcomes, sort of strings, or, you know, be able to prove that the provinces aren't just taking the money for healthcare and using it to fund tax cuts or something else, uh, which, you know, isn't unreasonable. But it's also not clear that the feds are at the table with money because you also don't have Trudeau coming out and meeting with the premiers or otherwise somehow engaging in this. So they don't seem as serious. But then again, the provinces, like you say, have the ability to actually just do things with healthcare. Like here in BC, they just reformed how doctors will be funded, how GPs will be funded, and that will cost this province more money. But at some point, you have to spend the money to have a healthcare system that is functioning. The final thing that might come out of this is that the federal government changes its idea and rather than do a big, you know, healthcare deal for the next generation with the provinces, it could just do one-on-one -on -one deals with each province like they did with childcare. And, you know, some provinces might get lots, others might get, you know, the same amount of money, but a lot more strings tied to it. And it could just be really messy and really make it hard to actually understand how this country works. Who could have known healthcare uh, right, should, could yeah. be so complicated? Yeah, especially when you have like a constitutional structure, but then also you realize that most of the fiscal capacity is at the federal level, so they need to just throw money at things to make it work. It's a mess. I I get the idea in this piece that John Horgan has good relationships. I do believe he actually does have good relationships with most of the premiers, even, well, maybe, I don't know what his relationship with Daniel Smith is like at this point, but 
I believe he's got a good relationship with even like Doug Ford and, uh, you know, Scott Moe and the others out there and Francois Legault and Trudeau. Horgan seems like if he's uh, not getting partisan swipes at, that he gets along with a lot of people. So maybe he is the guy that if there is someone to try to find a deal, he's the one, but the incentives aren't to get a deal here. Yeah, no, they're they're really not. And uh, like the Fed do kind of have a point about the tax transfers i they the provinces have not necessarily picked up all the tax space that the feds have left on the table in the past uh couple decades uh and that's yeah in part the, the provinces need to be willing to take the political hit of taking um advantage of that but that also means raising the provincial taxes to uh offset the dropped federal taxes and They've been kind of reluctant to do that uh, for the most part. Uh, I think you should like, bump in PST up by a double percent would get you a decent amount of the way there. And like that would have just taken up the uh, the amount of tax space that uh, was left empty after the, uh, what is it, like 2006, 2007 GST got. So like there is a, a certain amount of points there. Um mm. But yeah, and like the feds don't necessarily want to be spending a huge amount more money politically if they don't get political credit either. Nevertheless, like federal health transfers, I think have gone up pretty much every year except one that I've been lying. Like, at, there also probably does need to be some more serious work put into figuring out how to make the healthcare dollars go further. But Ottawa is not a exactly in the best spot to ensure that happens either and the whole thing's a giant mess the politics are super messy with the unclear lines of accountability on that so it really seems up in the air but i i expect this is just going to become a fight that's going to be increasingly public because that's really the only way the the provinces are going to be able to uh force the federal government's hand on this there's a lot of easy points there for someone who's willing to make the healthcare system work, but it's also not a simple solution in any way. The last story we're watching provincially, as I mentioned, David Eby is getting sworn in tomorrow, probably by the time you're listening to this podcast pending any, you know, emergency that we're not going to speculate on. Uh, one of the things he is promising to do first is to take over coordination in the downtown east side. I touched on this briefly on Camby Report with Matthew, but it is a provincial story as it's kind of the handoff from municipal politics to provincial as the crisis of homelessness and toxic drug supply is, you know, unabating in the downtown east side and along East Hastings. And to see the province finally come in and say, look, this is obviously a problem that's not limited in scope to the city of Vancouver because people move around the challenges are more than a municipality can handle I as the new premier will make it my first priority to fix things he didn't say how but he will fix them yeah so this paired with the uh lawn speculated or and lawn discussed uh provincial housing legislation does perhaps indicate that uh, we're going to see a a Victoria that is more hands-on when it comes to things that are more traditionally thought of as local jurisdiction, which in some ways is good because yeah, these problems don't necessarily stop at municipal borders. 
nevertheless, it is kind of interesting from like a pure political strategy point of view that uh, Evie wants to own this issue in particular because the downtown east side has been a mess for a long time. And there have been a lot of governments that have come in and tried to do something about it uh, to various extents or the other. And the problem has still remained. And it's being a premier that is going to like as one of their first steps take on a problem that is very very difficult to solve does carry with it some political risks i don't think he's approaching it from a strategy perspective first i think this is something he knows he needs to deal with because david eb's worked in the downtown east side in the past he cares about these issues i believe so going and solving the issues or at least improving them because yes there are long-standing issues and it's never exactly been you know all roses and flowers a lot worse in the last down there but exactly that right the pandemic has exacerbated things the uh, toxic drug supply has changed it from just you know an overdose crisis driven by opioid addictions to anyone who is using or tries a drug these days is at risk of dying and that wasn't always the case. Like all the drugs are synthetic now. The supply is entirely different. So the challenges are new and exacerbated. Mental health crises are out, you know, are gaining. And so there is just the simple thing that this is a thing a government needs to do. You need to look after your people. And it's been failing on that front quite clearly, both the municipality and the province. And the province has more tools. So it makes sense to center it there. Long term, there is a strategic win here. If he doesn't deal with this, this is going to be like the number one issue that BC United is going to keep coming back to. Kevin Falcon is going to leverage the same kind of campaign that uh, Ken Sim did, that BC has become lawless and nothing is working and you need a change to solve the problems that the you know soft lefties aren't doing have a strategic incentive to do something about this. He doesn't need to solve it perfectly, but he needs to make it so there are, it isn't just a continuous line of tents down East Hastings, because uh, those people deserve homes. So it will be good if he can improve it, uh, hopefully in a way that is compassionate, but we don't know what the plan will be yet. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity here, and I'm going to choose to be optimistic about how this goes forward. Because there's also a lot of opportunity to do a lot of like harm and bad things that won't actually help. Or they may get rid of tents, but they may also like, I don't know, start a riot. I think a riot is probably unlikely, but yeah, how this gets handled is going to matter quite a bit. And you touched on this idea of the provinces moving into different territory. And it reminded me, we didn't put it in the show notes, but the other story we kind of watched this week was this new bill in Ontario where they want to give municipalities and the mayors of major cities this like mega vote where they can yeah they can any provincial priority that a mayor wants to vote on they only need one third of the votes to pass yeah rather than 50 so, like, it was pitched well about that ford was going to be introducing a uh strong mayor system vote but like this is nothing like what a typical strong mayor is it's for those who 
don't know. Like Estrade Mayors is basically one where the mayor holds significant or decent amount of executive power as mayor, unlike what we currently have in BC, where the mayor is essentially just one vote on council and doesn't actually direct day to day administration um, of the executive functions of city government the way, say, a, a prime minister or premier directs the executive functions of their governments. And like, I, I could see a pretty strong case that as uh, municipal governance becomes more complex, particularly in big cities, you actually need to be able to have a more direct level of executive control by the the mayor. This is nothing like that. This is just a weird, like, okay, we'll give you a lower voting threshold on stuff that Queen's Park thinks is important. Which is just kind of weird and like also I guess like I split the baby with the bath water or I'm into my metaphors weird kind of like throwing like a like a split the baby down the middle sort of thing where um you know we don't want to go so far as just have the Ontario government step in and do the stuff that we think is important because we're calling it a priority but we also not just gonna like let the cities do whatever they want, irrespective of what the province is trying to get done. And it just leads this really weird thing that doesn't actually solve the problem, but it's going to make everything weird and people pissed off at Queen's Park anyway. Yeah, I wanted to say that I don't think anyone was asking Literally, for this. Uh, but apparently there, John Tory might have been. There was... He might have been the only there person was like, in Ontario asking for this. Yeah, and he's trying to defend himself now because I guess he had said... I don't think he asked for this specifically, but he wanted like, I guess he had said he wanted a quote, proactive veto to pass bylaws. Um, it's like, that's not how so maybe, vetoes- yeah, it, it was, maybe it was John Tory's idea because yeah, he wanted to get things through with less support, but it's like, that's not how vetoes work. It's like, such a weird thing. I've never, I've never heard of this type of approach. No, it's like vetoes don't work that way. Like, you know, a veto is when you actually, like, step in and stop something. It's not like a, hey, on certain cases... I, I want dictator yeah, I powers. Get, you know, where it's like, I get, would it be, like, 10 extra votes in the Toronto City Council be on, like, this issue, just because. So, I guess we'll keep our eye on that. I I, I think I can make a reasonable... I, I don't know what's going to be in Evie's bill, but I have a feeling it's not going to be this crazy. Yeah, it was just weird. We had to touch on it. Ontario is so weird. Well, let's jump to Ottawa for our two quick takes. First, a follow-up to last week's story. We talked about for a little bit this story of alleged Chinese interference that was reported by Global News reporter Sam Cooper and how uh, candidates were funneling money around... During the 2019 election, money was being fun- funneled by the, the People's Republic of China to candidates. Yeah, yes, so we're clear. Yeah, a motion has now passed the House of Commons to allow the Procedures Committee uh, to extend its hearing into foreign election interference by four meetings to investigate those claims. They'll be able to call witnesses back. They'll be able to uh, solicit additional documents and try and get a bit more light onto this than reporters have access to. Uh, The motion was put forward by Conservative MP Michael Cooper, a longtime critic of China, and interference like that 
but ultimately he voted against the final version because it was amended to provide uh, more flexibility to who redacts the documents and how quickly they get presented, uh, which was an amendment that was supported and passed by the Liberals and NDP. So ultimately, the Conservatives and Bloc Québécois voted against the motion because they thought it was too watered down. But ultimately, the committee will be looking more at this report. Good. It should be looked at more in January when the uh, the CSIS assessment came in. But yeah, good that's being looked at now. I mean, MPs couldn't have asked to look into this thing that they didn't know about because the prime minister's office didn't tell them. The other thing that's notable in here is the liberal critics did argue that uh, this would be better positioned at the ongoing uh, committee that they set up, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, NSICOP. That committee was set up by a previous oversight committee of CSIS, and it meets, I believe, uh, in camera. And so they can get unredacted documents and could look at more information, but they are then not able to produce as thorough of a public report about it. So I I can both see a reason you'd want to put it there, but then also it's not always useful to have it there unless you just want to ask questions of CSIS and tell them to do things differently. Yeah, I mean... If we had been told that, okay, this had been referred to uh, NSI um, back in January, but, you know, that had been not publicly disclosed at that time, I would I would feel better about this. But it doesn't seem like that had happened. But uh, possible to say it from uh, a couple thousand miles away. And the other thing MPs have approved recently is to build themselves some tunnels. The... Uh, Board of Internal Economy has approved a plan to connect all of the parliamentary buildings with tunnels, as well as the ones across the street. And the most notable thing here is that it's going to cost a quarter million, a quarter billion dollars, two hundred fifty million dollars to construct these tunnels. Roughly, they didn't get a hard estimate; they just kind of got a ballpark figure. So, so these tunnels would link the existing Commons and Senate buildings, Parliament's East, Centre, and West blocks. Uh, it would also connect the Wellington building, building and Blocks 1 and 2 that would get all of the offices and committee re rooms that parliamentarians need to go to connected so that they could travel underground in warmth and in safety. Uh, there would be a second phase that would cross the street under Wellington and go to the Confederation Building and Justice Building. All of this is part of the $5 billion ongoing center block refurbishment plan and construction that's underway. This is why the House of Commons is not meeting in the traditional chamber, and they're in the overflow room. I didn't realize that whole project was $5 billion. I mean, it was like in the billions range, but that was a little higher than I recalled it being. Uh, but, you know, construction costs have been going up uh, quite a bit in recent years, so I guess not a complete surprise. And tunnels are probably good. Look, I don't know if you've ever experienced an Ottawa winter, but they are not pleasant at all. So that alone would be a pretty good benefit for the the staff and whatnot uh, there. And yeah, have, having secure a more secure way to transit through the uh, parliamentary precincts, probably a pretty good idea, especially since um, Wellington Street is open to the public and should remain so. But as we saw last winter there, you want that is subject to disruptions and you want a way to get around that. Yeah. I mean, most 
prominent legislatures have some underground connections like this. So totally reasonable. I'm actually surprised Canada's parliament didn't. I guess there's like one existing tunnel that they'll work into this. I think the U.S. Congress building technically has a subway of some sort that goes between like it and its outlying buildings. I'm mostly impressed that like MPs actually voted to spend money on something not for them, but that they will use mostly. Yeah, it's uh, it's a rare moment. We also found out today that 21st Sussex is uh, like officially closed. Uh, seven years after nobody uh, was living there anymore, because it became too uninhabitable and was going through, and it's going to have some work done on it. But yeah, this is uh, this is not a country that likes to spend money on like the basics of keeping the government buildings running. I will credit Conservative MP John Brassard with giving the most stereotypical kind of response to this uh, price tag. He said, you know, these projects have a tendency to get out of hand really quickly and quote, a nice winter coat costs $199. So there's a big difference. True, but like, yeah, you, you don't get to have the option of like building a secret bunker off of your nice winter coat. The Diefen bunker is really cool. We should have more of them. There. So like the one other criticism I can see of this is that it could be a way for politicians to duck accountability, right? That instead of having to go outside, they can run through their little tunnels and avoid the public and the scrutiny. But like, I can also see some like genuine security benefits. And I'm like, not entirely joking about the bunker either. Uh, in the 2014 uh, shooting that happened at Parliament, the protective detail for the Prime Minister put him in a closet because there wasn't like a secure location uh, to quickly move the Prime Minister to. So like, yeah, you probably don't want to disclose it in a Globe and Mail story about uh, budgets for uh, parliamentary repairs, but you know there there could actually be a real benefit to that when it comes to security. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>